Okay, thank you so much for joining us again. Today we have Joe Burgo, and he's going to talk to us about some pretty interesting things. So I'll let you go ahead and make your own introduction so that I don't butcher it terribly because I, I feel like I never do anybody justice. <laughs> um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been practicing for more than 40 years. I'm also um, a psychoanalyst, which means I went through an additional four years of training and spent a lot of years on the couch myself. Um, I've had a general practice for all that time. I've been in private practice almost all that time. I've worked a lot with personality disorders. I have a special interest in shame and how it drives narcissism. And when I got into the gender space several years ago, um, I brought all that with me to my understanding of what's driving trans identification. And it's what I write about today. Wow, that's really interesting. I haven't heard of that um, perspective of shame and narcissism before necessarily, but you did touch on that in your um, GenSpect presentation. Um, titled The Boys Who Don't Masturbate, I think is what it was called. A lot of people right. were up in arms about that title. Well, you but, know, I, I think in retrospect, that was a little clickbaity, that title. And yeah, I, I, was just I could have chosen say, a better title. <laughs> but it was uh, it was direct. I mean, it was the focus of right. of these boys and the reason why they they don't engage in that. And that's kind of an integral part of maturing as a male and going through right. puberty and things like that is that aspect. I think for people to pearl clutch and act like that's not something that is part of a healthy male development right. um, are doing a little bit of a disservice to I, I, men. I agree. Um, the, the issues of shame and narcissism, I also discussed them with Sasha and Stella when I was on their mm -hmm. podcast. And just a plug, I also have written two different books on those two subjects. They're obviously oh, wow. interrelated. In, in 2015, um, I had a book come out called The Narcissist You Know. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I had a book come out called Shame. And they're, they're related concepts. I see shame, unconscious shame, as being the primary driver of narcissism. And mm -hmm. I define a particular type of shame, core shame, as, as a feeling of defect or deformity, um, the kind of felt awareness that something went badly wrong in your development. And mm -hmm. for some people, it's so unbearable that the primary defense against that painful experience is, is to create a new false identity, um, mm -hmm. an idealized false self, which is then felt to be superior to other people and is often defended against any kind of challenge or question in pretty obnoxious, hostile, <laughs> destructive ways, um, which bears well, on think, the current subject. Yeah. I think people can just relate to that on a really normal level. Like we see that all the time in high school. Right. You, like, oh, I was so nerdy in middle school, so I have to reinvent myself in high right. school, be a new me. And eventually most people just kind of fall back into who they are, but there is that group of people that maintains that kind of super hostile, super obnoxious, um, arrogant type of person where they would never want to be associated with that person that they were before or their right. friend group right. from before. 
So I, I think people can relate to that. We see it in, in popular culture all the time. So, we, like, we do. And I think we also see it in, in trans identification now. I mean, what mm -hmm. I just talked about with Sasha and Stella is trans identification as a kind of a narcissistic defense against feelings of shame. And, you know, we know these kids, these kids are often kind of misfits or outsiders. They've never felt like they belong. And then they get to create this new and improved identity, which wins them praise and acceptance. And then they become very um, vigilant about defending it and the truth of it. Mm -hmm. And they can become activists for gender ideology and become really destructive and hostile towards people who challenge it. Yeah, they definitely can. Um, unfortunately, I've got a, a relative who is a young man. Um, he's turning 20 soon and he's dealing with some identity issues. And thankfully, um, we managed to steer him away from medicalization and trying to do that whole victimhood and gen gender dysphoria um, type of mindset. But he's still very much seeming to deal with some identity issues and latching on to labels and things like that but it doesn't seem quite as bad as it was before. So that's a little comforting. He's still very lucky you. about it though. It's yeah. not off. That's not the usual story these days. Yeah. Um, thankfully I've got my background with gender dysphoria to try and like relate and also trauma and things right. that I can relate to relatives and things like that, that talk to me about it. So I've, I've helped to, few younger girls and things, but this was the first boy that I had talked to about it. So now that he's, you know, he's coming around being 20, it's a little bit more challenging because he's out on his own and you can't really, he's doing that thing where he's like, I just want to be me and figure it out for myself and I don't need any help. And it, it's, so it's a little bit of a challenge, but still trying to reach him and we well, do. you know, that's fine as long as he doesn't listen to all the people out there in the world who are going to tell him who he is. Yeah, exactly. That's the big issue um, with that personally. Yeah. But um, so you're going to be writing a new piece that um, everyone's going to basically fling arrows at you for, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> right. it, it's called it's called um, Sympathy for the Devil. Um, okay. autogynephilia as psychic retreat. Um, okay. And it, it, it grew out of my work, and I don't know exactly know how this happened, but I've, I've worked with about a half dozen men who struggle with autogynephilia in my practice. Mm -hmm. And I've been really lucky to be able to do kind of the psychodynamic work I've always done. And you know, these guys trusted me enough to let me in and for us to explore together what's going on. So it's, it's real. I found that it really goes along with my thinking about shame and narcissism. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of trauma in these yeah. guys' backgrounds, a lot of failed yeah. attachment relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I can make a pretty convincing case for why TRAs are the way they are. Um, mm -hmm. Really kind of thinking about them in keeping with my my narcissism book is kind of vindictive narcissists 
who, mm -hmm. who try to destroy you for challenging their idealized view of themselves. Mm -hmm. Kelly J. Keene will understand what I mean. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there, then I felt that it really didn't go far enough. Um, and, and as I began learning more about these guys and reading more, I, I think there's an additional element, which is that um, it's kind of a self-soothing mechanism. It's, it's a, if you look at some of the literature, I spent a lot of time on Ask AGP subreddit, and mm. there's a lot of talk about cross-dressing as kind of relaxation, self-soothing, a way to deal with hurt feelings, a way to withdraw from reality, the challenges of reality. So it is kind of like a psychic retreat. That's a term um, the psychoanalyst John Steiner coined, where, where when reality is felt to be too much to deal with, you can withdraw into a part of your mind to escape from it. I think that's also going on with these guys. Um, I've got some interesting clinical material. I've got some research from Ask AGP and a lot of other resources. I mean, I, it's, I'm trying to make a comprehensive argument about what's going on. So I've been thinking about this just in my own research of gender identity disorder, gender dysphoria, and all of the comorbidities. Do you think, it's like now that you're saying this, it's making me think of this question. So I'm like, I need to think of how to phrase it well. Do you think, because some people argue that AGP is this innate thing that exists in a vacuum and comes out on its own. Do you think that, or do you think it's kind of um, a symptom of other disorders and other traumas and things that is manifesting this way? I, my experience tells me that it's not simply innate and unrelated mm -hmm. to other mental health issues. So I disagree with that. Um, but, you know, my, my particular understanding is based on a much smaller group than, say, Mike Bailey has experience with. So right. I don't know. All I can talk about is the kind of knowledge and understanding I've developed. I, I think mm -hmm. people talk a lot about um, the, the relationship between AGP and personality disorders. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's true, but not in the way people might mean that. Um, I'm not big on diagnostic labels and disease categories to describe mental health mm -hmm. issues. So I, I've written about it um, before that I, I think that it's really shame and narcissism that can help us to understand the cluster B personality disorders. So I do see a lot of overlap between NPD and borderline personality disorder and autogynophiles, but not because they're diagnostic categories that overlap, but because they've got the similar underlying dynamics, unconscious dynamics mm -hmm. going on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I've looked at case studies and things that Mike Bailey has posted, and it has alarmed me from time to time, like certain things that he seems to overlook and he hasn't really addressed it with me before when I brought it up to him. Like one case in particular I've talked about before that really, really stood out to me was a little boy who was six, who was presenting with autogynephilia, which 
I don't know that it's a good idea to label a child with a paraphilia, but he was um, talking about how, oh, this is amazing because it suggests that it's it's um, something he inherited from his father, who's not a gynophile. And I'm like, right. oh, bingo, like that's not tipping you off that that might be a confounding variable. And then there was another confounding variable that there was suggestions of potential like sexual abuse from the mother. But then the clinicians in the paper said something about how, well, the parents said there was no sexual abuse on their part to the child. Right. So, you know, then clearly there was no sexual abuse. And it's like, um, <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I just, so, I just heard yeah. him talking about that case. <clears throat> I was listening to his appearance on heterodorks with Corinna and, mm. um, Nina. Nina, and he talked about this as as kind of some evidence and support of the idea that it could be genetic. I don't know. There's there's mm -hmm. other possible explanations. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's just it seems like there's certainly confounding variables that he's overlooking to fit his narrative, and I think that's a dangerous way to go. Like we should be looking yeah. at every possible variable that's contributing to this if we really want to understand but um well and, yeah. and i absolutely agree that you shouldn't be diagnosing a six-year-old child with a paraphilia i think that's that's a big mistake and it's also it's like a what a what a cross to bear for the rest of your development yeah yeah, yeah. so um some people have used the term I think Stella might have as well used the term autogynephilic child um, or autogynephilic boys and suggested, I don't know if she suggested in particular diagnosing a boy um, or labeling a boy with autogynephilia that you have in your practice. But I mean, I've heard from some clinicians that that's something that you would never, ever do. You never want to apply a sexuality or a paraphilia or anything to a child because they're in flux and things like that. Um, so can you talk about that, like your opinions on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I understand that Stella is saying that based on her experience, and I won't argue with that. But as a <clears throat> as a professional standard, I think it's it's incorrect to apply that kind of sexuality to a child. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't think it's accurate or fair. Um, mm -hmm. I, what I will say is that I've worked with some teenage boys where I see similar dynamics with some of the older autogynephilic men, and I could see that maybe they're evolving towards that especially mm -hmm. if they're under the influence of sissy porn or forced feminization mm -hmm. videos. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, th I think it's unfair to foreclose somebody's identity by diagnosing it at an early age. That just doesn't feel right. Yeah. I don't, you know, in general, I don't like diagnostic labels. Um, mm -hmm. I think we can't avoid autogynephilia. There's just kind of no way around it because it's a constellation of features that go together and it seems to be a distinct entity that we can talk about but other than that i don't i just don't like diagnosis or diagnostic labels they make yeah. us feel like we understand something when we don't yeah i also feel like 
there's this push now too, where I feel like it's irresponsible and it goes against the messaging of, you know, dress however you want and things like that. When, and you know, don't stereotype boys, don't stereotype girls. When we say if a boy is presenting feminine or having any kind of gender distress or anything like that, when we say, oh, well, it's either because he's gay or he's AGP, and those are the only two options, right. we're kind of, I mean, at that point, it's like, well, why don't you just say that they were meant to be trans? Like, it's it's the same kind of just, you've, as you said, closed the book, you've put them down two paths, and there's nothing else. Right. And I've tried to argue this with certain people, and then they'll say, no, 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 you just don't understand and it's it's definitely one or the other. It's super rare that it's anything else. And it's like, well, it, it just doesn't feel right to me. No, you know, I get the same kind of pushback, um, probably from the very same people that are pushing back on you. There is this kind of strict adherence to the Blanchardian typology, you know, that they're either HSTS, homosexual, transsexuals, or they're autogynophiles. Well... I'm working on another paper. I'm working with a group of parents that are parents of ROGD boys and from my own practice and experience to talk about a third way, which I see. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't know that I'm able to say much with certainty yet. I've got more work to do. But what, what I see is what looks to me like a, a socially and technologically induced kind of dissociation where kids right. today, and this goes from both for both boys and girls, spend so much time in virtual worlds and in, in, in screens that they, that they're, they've lost touch with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we all do this. Those of us who are feeling people do this automatically without having to know that we're doing it. But the way that, we know what we feel is by registering sensations in our body so that mm -hmm. if if i feel like kind of a, a something around my eyes and a, and a pressure in my chest and something at the back of my throat i don't have to say oh those things equal sadness i just know <laughs> i'm feeling i know i'm feeling sad but i think yeah. if you're living in a virtual world up in your head you don't have access to your feelings. I have, I'm thinking yeah. of one client in particular, very dissociated, had a major trauma in her past. And, you know, in, in almost every session, I would stop her from talking and just say, okay, you know, breathe, move your attention down into your body, into your chest. And she'd start crying uh -huh. almost every session. And yet the rest of the time she was unaware of it. So I, yeah. I do think that there's this cohort of kids, but let's talk about the boys who are who are living in virtual worlds who may already be kind of on the spectrum a little bit, which mm -hmm. is has similar features, detached from their bodies, more cerebral, unable to process emotion, not not tuned into social cueing. And I think when you when you don't have access to your own bodily experience, it makes you very vulnerable to narratives about who you are. Yeah. They can just tell you who you are, like donning a different avatar for, you know, an online game you're playing. I, mm -hmm. I, I 
Heather Hang says something very interesting along these lines in, in her last book with Brett um, Weinstein. She sort of hints at it, and I really agree with her, that something's happened in the last, I guess, 15 years with the, you know, the technological advances and with the growth of social media where kids are, are they're just dissociated from their actual in-body experience. Yeah. It's interesting that you should say that because um, I did kind of unconventional therapy for my body dysmorphia and the gender dysphoria. And um, one of those unconventional means of therapy was hypnotherapy. And it was a lot of the breathing and reconnecting and like sensing my body and what I was feeling in it. And I did cry a lot, like as soon as we would start doing that. Right. And it, I didn't realize how much tension I was carrying around all the time. Right. And, um, I, I helped my brother. Um, he used to have really crippling anxiety and I did the same like hypnosis techniques and everything with him. And had him listen to the recordings that my hypnotherapist had done for me. And I mean, it totally, it was like revolutionary for him. He's right. so much better now. And he can just self-soothe now so easily and just get it together. It's crazy. Like yeah. how effective that is. Just reconnecting with your body. It's, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we've lost that definitely these days. You and know, it's so important for boys in particular because so much of their energy is that kinetic physical energy. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think pretty much every therapist I know who works with gender distressed kids will tell the parents is get them off of their screens, get them out doing physical activities using their bodies. You know, everybody knows they have to do this, right? Mm -hmm. The one one of the thing, so. ways, ways I think about it is, you know, um, defense mechanisms, you know, the, the ways that we hide unpleasant truths from ourselves. Um, in a way, all that means is really shifting your attention away from something like I'm not going to pay attention to that painful thing over there. I will pay attention to this instead. Um, it's not something that we consciously decide to do. It's a kind of an unconscious defense mechanism. But when you think about it, I'm gonna I'm gonna move out of my body where I register all of this pain and trauma, and I'm just gonna live in my head, you know, in the mm -hmm. realm of words and symbols moving around that have nothing to do with what's going on down below. Um, right. I, that seems sort of kind of intuitively obvious to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I mean, part of that is the shame. It's like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't right. want to acknowledge that it happened to me. I don't want to, there's that guilt that comes with it, that right. I was complicit to a degree in my own abuse, right. um, or in some, a negative experience that I had. And it's really difficult to contend with. And a lot of times what I tell people is like, well, what would you tell somebody else that had those feelings? You would be forgiving, right? right. And that's what my therapist told me. <laughs> and so that's what I tell other people. And then it's like that moment that clicks and it's like, you don't want to be forgiving to yourself because you're still so ashamed and you feel so guilty. Right. And that that's really, I think, where the power abusers have over you is that that continuing to make you feel bad. 
right. and like that's that's where that hole is and it's like no <laughs> like they're they're the broken person that still needs to work out their stuff you're fine you need to just like heal and be okay and accept and forgive and everything so sorry for going off on it no that's that's okay <laughs> I, I just add to that as i would say yes but they've they've also damaged you and you've got mm -hmm. some feelings about the way you're damaged as a result of what happened and that's hard to bear um yeah. you'd rather not go near that either I, i'm mm -hmm. not sure it's just a matter of forgiving yourself which needs to happen mm -hmm. but also sort of accepting the ways in which your experience damages you in lasting ways that's really yeah. hard to to face not that you can't grow and recover from them but it's it's not just a matter of forgiveness i guess yeah it does definitely like change you forever and <laughs> i think that's where if we can talk about the the hostility that comes from with the infighting and things back and forth and people online this is why i'm so sensitive to the women and and the people the parents who've had issues with the AGP gate and and people campaigning for AGP and the typology and everything so hard to the point where they're like, we need to teach about it in schools to like children. And I'm like, whoa. Um, and then you get the hostility from the other side of that, the opposition to that. And it's like, I'm, I sympathize with them because they're having a visceral reaction to people who have hurt them and to something that has hurt them in their lives and things like that. Like th this is the same type of person, I guess, that reminds them of people who've hurt them. So it's, it's like hard to just drop that because they recognize the danger and they recognize the harm. And then when you, you talk to these other people that are pushing it, they're like, no, you're just pearl clushing and, and hysterical and you need to just forget it. And it's like they can't. You know? yeah, well, you know, you, you're you're in the same position I'm in is that, you know, nobody's happy with your position. So I, <laughs> I, I completely, you know, I completely disagree with this attempt to make autogynephilia into something that's just a normal variation on heterosexuality, this rebranding it as auto heterosexuality. I just like, mm -hmm. no, I'm sorry. No, um, I reject yeah. that utterly. And on the other hand, um, the fact that I work with men who have this issue and, and sympathize with them and try to understand them, it doesn't make the, the, the gender critical feminists very happy either. You know, they, they're, yeah. they, you know, they just want to denounce them all as porn adult fetishists. And what I, what I try to do in this essay is to distinguish from people who are defending this idealized false self of them version of themselves, which is, I say, a defense against shame. The, the, the trans rights activists who are out there saying trans women are women and we're going to destroy you if you don't agree. That's one type. And then there's the other type who are the men I see in my practice and who aren't going out in public um, dressed as women who are struggling with it and trying to understand what drives them. I have a lot of sympathy for them not a lot of sympathy for the first type um, 
and I, I understand why people like Kelly J. Keen get rabid about them. I yeah. mean, the, the, you know, the way they are treated by these men is really appalling. I, and I also mm -hmm. just I have very little patience with the idea of, you know, it just being a normal sexuality and that, you know, Anne Lawrence at one point says that autogynophiles come to feel about their female identity the way a man who is married to a woman after a long time might feel about her loving, idealizing, you know, that, and it's just like, really? I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's a difference be between having a relationship with a real person in which there's mutual interdependency and vulnerability mm -hmm. and having a relationship with yourself. I'm sorry, they're entirely different. Yeah. And having, I used to have quite a few friends who were trans-identified males and <laughs> one of them did me the favor of showing me screenshots from their chat group. And when I wasn't around, the things that they said about women and each other and <laughs> everything <laughs> was totally different than like things what? that they like said what? when people, well, they were really horrendous to each other, tearing each other down. And um, they had basically harassed the youngest among them that I knew of um, into, you know, with, oh, you're not attractive. You're not attractive and you don't pass. Send, send nudes, send nudes. And so he did. And they tore him to shreds. It was awful. Um, things that they said, <laughs> I don't even want to repeat some of the memes they shared about, like, I will say it, it concerned... <sighs> being having a sexual relationship with a biological woman or a woman <laughs> every woman is biological <laughs> but like a woman's um boyfriend or husband and then basically excreting his fluids and reading her texts and whatever it was just it was just awful it was quite possibly some of the most disgusting things i've ever read that they were, sh and it was just, I, I couldn't believe, I immediately just started blocking most of them. I was like, I cannot, like, I can't trust you to be like honest with me or, or to be genuine. Like, what do you, it, it was so eye opening. And I've been very careful <laughs> with them since then. I also, yeah, I just, yeah, I just have been very, very careful with them. And I keep telling people just watch out because they will present a totally different version of themselves to you than they have, especially if they're living full time as their identity. Right. Um, then they are presenting with each other or by themselves. Like this right. idea that they are just married to themselves and have this really loving relationship is a fantasy i think <laughs> most of the well, time the word i use in my my essay is it's it's just preposterous i mean <laughs> how could anybody believe that that's true um and i and i as i've made clear i have very little patience for it the people who are defending their trans identities believing that trans women are women and going that route are dangerous um, yeah. because if you challenge it and they perceive you as a threat, they will come after you, you know, they will hurt you. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. different from somebody yeah. who acknowledges he has a problem. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it it's really toxic and really a disservice to these men to play into it and um, yassify it, you know, <laughs> like encourage it and things like that. Like there, I feel like there's a difference between telling somebody like a color looks nice on them or something, or that something is particularly flattering if you genuinely believe it and going out of your way to be like, no, you look fabulous. <laughs> like Even if they, they don't. And it's like, just don't say anything. Like you don't, you just treat them like a normal person. You don't have to baby them and it's right. not helping. It's really not helping <laughs> to baby them. So, or, or I would say lying to them, lying, lying to yeah. people never helped anyone. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, I, I find myself often in a difficult position because I am like friends. I would say friends with Aaron Terrell and things like that. Um, we've texted and we have each other's numbers and things like that. I disagree with the way that Aaron characterizes autogynephilia as just a normal variant of heterosexuality. I feel like maybe Aaron has said otherwise here and there, but I'm not quite sure recently. We last we kind of got into like a heated thing. We haven't really talked like I'm very, I'm very direct. And I can be a little like aggressive when I'm curious about something. I don't curse at anybody. I try, but I, and it, it's hard to read intent like and tone from text. Right. But it's just, I'm very, especially like now that my hormones are back to normal, I'm very like intense with my questioning. I'm very, very curious and like rapid fire with my questions. Um, and so just, I feel like we got into a spot where we were disagreeing about some things and I'm not quite sure where Aaron's positions are now, but I, I had to stop and be like, you're suggesting that we teach about this, this very niche thing to children in high school, like teens in high school it, as part of like sex ed, because you believe that there are so many boys that have this. And it, I don't think that's accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, on the one hand, I think it's, it's a worthy goal. They want to save boys from needlessly transitioning medically, right? If they don't mm -hmm. understand that they're they've got they're struggling with autogynephilia, you know, great. I think that's a good idea, but right. I don't think I we do, do that by teaching it as a normal sexuality in high school. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. So here it's so okay. Let's let's do a hypothetical. If a boy was presenting to you with, as you described it, it was looking like it was going that way. Like what would your, I guess your method be for approaching that with that patient? Well, I, you know, that's, that's not hypothetical because I do have okay. boys like that in my practice. So I'm, what the way I see it is that these are boys who have a lot of shame, a lot of, you know, they have really low self-esteem. And what I see them 
doing with their their trans identification and their involvement sometimes with um, online groomers, let's say, is they're, mm -hmm. they're getting a lot of stroking. They're being made to feel about themselves, um, that they're pretty, that they're attractive, they get rewarded, and it's, it's like a, a drug to counter mm. the, the shame they feel. And my goal is to try and find a way to help them feel good about themselves in other ways, you know, like not mm -hmm. necessarily by developing, quote, masculine self-esteem, but, but something that's based more on, on the reality of, of their abilities and their gifts and their mm -hmm. accomplishments um, to, to get them more comfortable with the idea of taking the initiative and goal setting and persevering towards achieving things rather than retreating into this sort of passive space where they just they get admired for being pretty right does that make mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely does and i think that that happens to the girls as well um but it's so confusing for the boys because i think it also makes them feel confused about their their sexuality and things like that. Right. Like they might suddenly feel like, well, am I gay? Because these are men that are making me feel this way. And I'm, and then I'm kind of attracted to this idea of myself as a girl. And so it can really be confusing on this fundamental level when they're in that transition period from child to adult. And there's so much of that kind of going on already that like awakening, if you will. Um, no, and especially now, I mean, especially at this moment, this cultural moment where there's all this dialogue about trans identities and there's all this dialogue about toxic masculinity yeah, and yeah. the patriarchy and rape culture. It's like, you know, boys, yeah. I've talked about this at Denver, like boys today are really uncomfortable with their sexuality. Um, they don't quite yeah. know what to do with it. And you know, so if they don't want to be an oppressor, right, they don't want to be one of the rapist class, mm -hmm. then, you know, it's it's sort of an escape <laughs> to be a, a trans identified boy who's a, who's actually a female. Right? You don't have to deal with all that. Yeah. I mean, that's a simplified view, but yeah. it does play a part in, in pretty much everything I've seen. Yeah, it, I've I've seen it. I mean, I've yeah. seen it. I've talked to them and. I've tried reaching people and, and talking to them on the other side of things. I do it less now because I'm more careful about who I get into comment sections with back and forth to, to save time. But yeah, it is, it really does come back to that. Like I am rewarded for this attention in a way that I was never rewarded in the past. Right. In the past, I was made to feel dirty and bad. And right. now I feel wonderful about myself and I'll actually take selfies and, and I feel positive and, um, I feel cute and I feel wanted. And it's like, Oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know, I you know. felt otherwise, like in your life, I'm really sorry that people made you feel like you weren't <sighs> all those things before. Right. And, and, but this is not the way I'm really sorry. The only people who are doing this for you are, perverts really <laughs> and the other thing about that is that um I, and i talked about this in 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 my my paper on the revolt against authority for 
for Colin, that I see these kids um, kind of avoiding adulthood and the need yeah. to move into a responsible position and to make difficult choices and to figure out what to do with their lives. They just retreat into this trans identity in which that's it. You don't need to do anything else. You know, you get you get rewarded and praised for being your brave trans self. Excuse me. And then you're done. Right. There's yeah. there's nothing else. Yeah. And um, this is one thing I I do really agree with Aaron on is Aaron was talking about, it's not even about medicalizing anymore. It's not even about um, transitioning to something. It's just being trans is what's becoming attractive now. Just right. slapping on those labels and the little flag emoji and you're good to go. And it's, it's really an odd thing how many kids are just wanting to dissociate from, from, anything like a goal, uh, a motivation, a hobby, a life, like they just want this label and it makes them special. Right. You know, I, I think that Jonathan Haidt is, is, has something to say about this and the way in which the, this past generation of parents have coddled and sheltered their children from having to deal with adversity and challenge and frustration, they, you know, or the snowplow parents who kind of clear the way and make everything easy. Mm -hmm. I think it's a factor, you know, it's not the explanation, but it's a factor that these kids are kind of unprepared for the yeah. real world. They, they don't they don't know how to deal with adversity and frustration and challenge and fear. And they take refuge in these trans identities that are celebrated and then they don't need to do anything else. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, we're in a mess. <laughs> we are. What would you suggest as activities that parents could do with their boys and even their girls that could kind of start to pull them back to being more like in tune with their bodies and connect with their communities and their families. It, it was interesting. I, I was, uh, there was a Twitter exchange last night with, um, somebody talking about this issue, this issue of getting your kids physically active and taking hikes. And this one man said, um, don't ask your children what they want to do, tell them what they're going mm -hmm. to do. And that's our role as fathers to lead our families. So I said to him, I said, at the risk of inviting a dog pile, do you think that <laughs> that is the role of fathers? I mean, do fathers have okay. a role that's different from what mothers do? No response. Nobody touched it with with a ten foot pole. Um, but I do think I do think he's he's right, and it can be a mother or a father who does it. But you mm -hmm. just say we're going on a hike. Yeah. You know, you will put down your smartphone. Won't be coming along. We're going for a hike. Mm -hmm. We're going camping. We're going to go play you know, pickleball. We're going to do whatever. But I think you you can't invite them. You have to, you know, you can't expect them to be amenable. You're going to have to force them. I don't know. I, I tell you, if I had my my parental trauma to do all over again, I would have pulled my daughter out of school, taken her um, out, taken away her smartphone, and do what, you know, another parent I know did is just go live somewhere else, live in another country. Mm -hmm. 
um, yeah, because you're fighting you're fighting a huge battle when the whole culture yeah. that's an exaggeration but so much of the culture is against mm -hmm. what you think is best for your kids yeah and the truth is i mean not to push religion on anybody but just to use it as an example we used to live in kind of little Christian communities and like way back when, and everybody went to the same church and everybody knew each other and they had little socials like church socials and things like that. Now we don't, and we live in a more secular society and we don't really have socials and things like that, that aren't happening at the school. Well, the problem is, is now that the school is pushing all this stuff on the students, where do we go? Just, just for them to have, no messaging, like just the social without the messaging, just so they can talk to each other, just so they can be with each other and just interact and be like humans together without all these ads and flags and, <laughs> and all that. That's what I mean. It's like, it's, it's everywhere. And how yeah. do you have an influence when the world is against you. I mean, we're seeing this now, and you know, in these, you saw the case in Montana where supposedly they they took away this fourteen year old child from her parents because they would not affirm her identity. I mean, mm -hmm. wow, wow. Yeah, I'm actually helping out with that case. I just good for you with um, a Montana representative who works with children's and children and families and got them connected with the family um, through Gabrielle Clark. I'm part <laughs> of her. Um, affirming reality connected organization. So great, fantastic. Yeah, it's <laughs> doing what I can. I have an eight month old too, so like, <laughs> trying to do like fifty different things and be a present parent <laughs> to the eight month old. Well, so. speaking of that, here, here's here's <laughs> something I feel guilty about. So I'll mm -hmm. I'll like take the blame on myself, but I think it applies to a lot of parents. So I remember, you know, my kids are grown now that the, the oldest is 32 and I remember when screens became available and how much quote easier parenting became mm -hmm. where all of a sudden you could just give them you know this numbers I don't know what they were called then tablets or whatever video mm -hmm. handheld video games and you wouldn't be worried about them screaming on the whole flight and bothering everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, I'm ashamed of that now. Um, but I think mm -hmm. a lot of us today, a lot of parents today, um, have handed over a lot of their responsibilities to screens. It's yeah. another thing that Heather talks about in, in the mm -hmm. book, is that um, she I think this expression she says is, don't let screens babysit your children. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, I think we're, we we got lazy or something. I don't know, but we didn't realize yeah. what we were getting into. Well, we're we're humans, and humans are animals. And what animal doesn't just take the <laughs> the load <laughs> off when they can? Like yeah. we see it with chimps. We see it with any animal in captivity. If they can go ahead and just ignore something or or just take a break for a little while, they're gonna do it. So I, yeah. I don't think we should be that hard on ourselves like yes we should know better and we should be more present responsible but it is kind of we've seen it in the natural world happen so we're we're prone to it like any other creature so, yeah i agree and i think that parents today need to be very cautious about screens yeah. 
and social media and internet. I mean, gosh, I don't know what I would do if I have kids growing up now. I don't think I would let them have any access to the internet or a smartphone until they were like 15 <laughs> or 16. Yeah. But the well, problem is was... that that makes them outsiders in their own peer group right. at school. Yeah. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is. It was difficult because um, my parents were, my mother was an enabler and my father was very abusive and I couldn't take my siblings out. So I just had to do the best that I could and parent from across the country and over the phone and try to do what I could. And so I couldn't control that my mother was allowing my brother who was like five or six years old to get online and play video games with people, strangers. So all I could really do was just to the best of my ability, constantly (laughs) throw in like, be careful because some people, some strangers might trick you into thinking they're a kid and they're not a kid. It's a grown up who's pretending so that he can make you do things that might hurt you or say weird things to you or something that makes you uncomfortable. If that ever happens, let me know and tell me who they are and I will take care of it and go away from them, but just be very careful. And he's six years old. So he's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But Eventually it did sink in. Um, And it did actually happen to my sister where this, this girl she knew was actually a man pretending to be a girl And she was pretty wise to that game and collected all the screenshots and everything, sent it to me. And we were able to send that to the authorities, thankfully. Wow. Um, But yeah, it, it is scary, scary, scary that it's just open. You know, the stranger doesn't have to wait around the corner in the ice cream truck anymore. He can just be in your house talking to your kid in the next room. You have no idea. So definitely, definitely parents need to be there and be like, hey, this is weird, but let me just tell you that sometimes adults will be creeps. Be careful. (laughs) Well, and what, you know, along that, the same lines, it's amazing to me that I think they're progressive open-minded parents are in favor Mm -hmm. of things like, you know, drag queen story hour and in introducing the idea of these sexualities, you know, in, in primary school, like trying to normalize all of these types of sexuality or, or even if we're not going to normalize them, just even mentioning them at an age before they're ready to hear about them. I, I, and it's, it's interesting that so many uh, it's, it's progressives parents are, you know, supporting these kinds of behaviors, entertainments, books in the library. I mean, I I don't know. I have to ask, because you've done work with these kinds of groups before and like studied them for your books, do you think it is that like they're trying to make up for having been bullied and having been outcast. And it is that vindictive narcissism coming back. Like, well, now I'm going to, you know, buck all of the stereotypes and buck all of the, the safeguarding and prove that these people are actually safe and people who don't fit in are are fine and whatever. We're talking about the the parents and the progressive adults who support these ideologies. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I live in I live in in such a community in which I'm at odds with everybody, and I don't. Yeah. I, it's just a mystery. Like, how can you support these things? Sometimes yeah. I think it's just, you know. It, it falls into the culture wars. It gets divided on party lines and thought stops at that point because sure the Republicans <laughs> like that awful Ron DeSantis are opposed <laughs> to these kinds of things. Then they must be good. And I will stand yeah. up in support of them. And that's the extent of it. Thought stops. You know, the, the idea that the yeah. other side might actually have something useful to say. Mm-hmm. No. That's true. I was guilty of that before. And then, <laughs> and then but I, it was weird because I, I had grown up and I was friends with Republicans and I was a Democrat. And I was like, yay, we're all getting along and we, we're all American and we all have our differences, but ultimately we just want what's good for the country. And I, but then over time, they just kept whispering in my ear with all these talk show hosts and everything that, ooh, those evil Republicans, don't talk to them. They're not actually your friends. They want to kill you and they want to kill everybody. And so eventually I did end up in that place. And it really wasn't until I saw how they were pushing this on kids that kind of like started it. And I was like, hmm, having grown up with those feelings, it's really not cool to start inciting them in children yeah and then i saw how they were treating um tulsi gabbard and that kind of finished it for me and i was like what do you want like she's she's a woman of color she is not christian and or i don't think she's christian i think her husband was they practice Hinduism, something like that. But so, remember. yeah, like all of these things. And I was like, and she's a woman, like she's the, she's kind of what you want, right? <laughs> they were like blocking her out over and over again. And I was like, okay, something else is going on here. They're not being honest with me. The best, the yeah. best book I've read on this subject about, well, one of the best books is Matt Tybee's book, Hate Incorporated. And he talks about oh, how um, the media landscape has fractured and that we no longer speak to the country as a whole, but we speak to particular constituencies and that the yeah. way that the networks um, engage their constituents, constituencies and get them to be invested is by inciting hatred of an enemy on the other side. And he just talks about how all the messaging that comes through the media, and I think it's true on both sides, it's to foment hatred of the other party, which yeah. makes it impossible to have any kind of a, you know, rapprochement between the two views, to find compromise, to find what you have in common. And I think people are, are now stuck in that way of thinking. Like the idea of compromise is anathema to everybody, right? Yeah, I agree. It's... <laughs> I don't know how we fix it without just talking to each other. Like, like I said, even if I really disagree with somebody about something and it seems heated, the fact that we can talk about it at all is so great. And I love that. <laughs> like we, And I don't hold it against them. It's like, I don't think you're a bad person. I just think we disagree and, and that's okay. Like we can just keep talking about it. Like, even though I'm uncomfortable or, you know, talking about certain things or, or whatever, because it's frustrating. Like, I think that's what it is. I think people are just 
not okay with being frustrated maybe. But yeah, I just, we're not going to get anywhere without like just kind of yelling at each other sometimes <laughs> and disagreeing. Or, or just dividing into our so silos and having really nothing to, to do. Get over that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, a friend of mine and I, Marla Estes, a couple of years ago, we, we taught an online course. We had about a couple dozen students, and it was called Cultivating Humility. Mm-hmm. And it was about teaching the mindset that you need in order to be able to engage with someone on the other side, which means being humble about the limits of your own knowledge and being honest about the ways in which you lie to yourself about Mm -hmm. what you actually know. And it was great. It was a Mm -hmm. really great course. And she's continuing to do that work. Um, Braver Angels, another organization. There are these great organizations that are trying to help people to start talking to one another. And I used to want to do that work. And I, I feel like I've fallen back in into the yeah. polarizing trap because now, now I just want to defeat gender ideology. I just mm-hmm. want it out of the institutions. I want it right. discredited and banished from everything. It's like there is no compromise. You can, you have, right, it has yeah. to be victory. So I don't know. Did I just yeah. fall back into the polarizing trap myself? I don't know. That's well, the way I feel. There's that that trap, you know, like how much nuance and how much understanding do we allow before it's that slippery slope again of like, well, we let you in, we let you talk and whatever, and we understand each other. And then they get that wedge in and they start again. So there are some things I think that it's okay to be like, no, like murder is wrong. Sterilizing kids is <laughs> I draw wrong. the line at murder. Like <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like pedophilia as a sexuality. No, that's still wrong. Like, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And it's totally. weird how some people will just be so nuanced. It's like, no, let's, let's destigmatize the pedophilia. Let the pedophiles come and like hang out. They can even hang out with my kids. It's fine. It's like, no, like, wait a minute. <laughs> So. No, I mean, I, I like what you're saying. Um, I think there's a value for stigmatizing. I think it shame, public shaming serves a social good when it upholds common values and protects mm-hmm. innocent people. I don't think there's anything wrong with stigmatizing pedophilia. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think we should normalize that. No, I, I think there's more danger in normalizing it. Like, it's the, the fox in the hen house. It's like, yeah. sure, we can let the fox into the hen house. And when he hurts somebody, then we'll stigmatize. It's like, why do you even want to risk him being in there? Like, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's just too, it's too much nice. It's like uh, you know, I think we're, we we're living in an era, it's been going on for a long time, in which we, we, we've culturally tried to remove the shame from everything. You know, mm-hmm. that shame is just... It's a universally bad thing. You know, everybody agrees. Mm -hmm. John Bradshaw says toxic shame is bad, which it is. Brene Brown says that social shaming of women is bad, which it is. But somehow shame as a whole has gotten a bad name. And um, one of my points I like to argue is, well, if shame is such a bad thing, why from an evolutionary perspective did humans evolve the capacity to feel shame? If we are able to Mm -hmm. feel shame, it must serve some species good. Right. So there are there are evo biologists who will argue that 
um, the capacity to feel shame is helpful for creating tribal unity, in adherence mm -hmm. to tribal values, um, discouraging freeloading and other traits that are not useful for the survival of the tribe and consequently of the individual. So that being sensitive to shame, which is really being excluded from the tribe, mm -hmm. you're banished, you're, you're deemed unacceptable, which means you'll probably die. You know, being able, mm -hmm. being sensitive to shame is a good thing. I agree yeah. that shame is a good thing. It can be a good thing. It can be a toxic thing, but I don't think we, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, that's a very good point. Is that something that you cover in your book? Um, it's something that I cover in my 2018 book called Shame. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't covered and with autogynephilia or anything like that? I think we've pretty much covered it all. We hit the bases. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Joe Burgo, for coming on and oh, talking with me. It was me. fun. It was a fun and conversation. Hopefully. I think the best the podcasts are yeah. best when you just start talking to somebody you like and you have a good good talk together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I loved getting to meet you. That was great. I'm really glad yeah. that we got to meet each other before talking this right. way, which I've right. never done with anybody that I've interviewed before. So that was great. What do you mean? Is that not true? What do you mean? I've never met somebody first in person that I've interviewed and then interviewed them this oh, way. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Everybody that I've talked to in any interview that I've been in, like whether I was the interviewee or the interviewer, I've only ever met them online first and some I've never met in person, but I did get to meet Jennifer Wall in person. So that was nice. <laughs> it's, it's a great thing about those conferences. Like, you know, like Heritage and Genspect Denver is like, you know, getting to meet these people. You know, they're people I've known for years and never met and then mm -hmm. finally get to meet them in person. It's just, it's yeah. great. It's fantastic. Yeah. So, well, you and Zach are doing ahead. great work. I appreciate it. I appreciate it being invited on.